listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning, church. Please be seated. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus. And I do also want to say... Happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. We hope it's a special day for you and uh, your family. And bad news is I do not have a uh, kind of feel-good Mother's Day sermon for you. Instead, we are going to go to Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and we are going to begin a new series today through the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see it from chapters 5 through Seven, And it's this massive teaching that Matthew records for us of hearing Jesus speak. But this today, as we begin this, the Sermon on the Mount is actually very violent and very painful. Because it's what it is calling us and hopefully will force us to do is to take an accurate look at ourselves. As I've been reading it over the last few weeks, I mean, it almost feels like if you're really open and honest with the truth that we see, it's almost like God taking a scalpel and performing a fearsome but absolutely needed surgery on us. So are you excited yet? And I know you're looking forward to it. But it is so helpful and so important for where we are today. For one, it is this thing that Jesus, that Matthew records for us, where Jesus is going to try to do something. He is going to try to tear down this shallow and weak and self-centered faith in hopes that he is going to build back something deep and strong and Christ-exalting. But he knows he's got to tear everything down first before this rebuilding can take place. So if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We will uh, read the first six verses and pray and then walk down through these verses together. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And this is the word of the Lord. Let his saints hear. Pray with me. Father, this morning we come before you and Lord, I echo the heartfelt prayer from our this morning that we do, we want to honor and praise you for our mothers that have been used to shape and mold us into who we are today. And at the same time, we know there are many that have difficult relationships with their mothers or It is a day not of great joy, but of sadness because 
of a variety of reasons. And so, Lord, we do lift all of them up to you. And, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, that we should feel totally unworthy to even open and read it. And so, Lord, would you grant us favor this morning? Would your spirit teach and lead and guide us through this truth that we would honestly stop and think about where we are and how we view ourselves and how we view others and most importantly, how we view you. So I pray that this series would be life-changing for us. And so we ask that you would do that in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your spirit. Amen. So this morning in Matthew chapter 5, I want to set the context because we're kind of jumping right in to this section. I want to kind of talk about what is going on and where is Jesus and why does he stop and do this discourse, this massive teaching that covers several chapters. Well, if you begin in Matthew, you notice that Matthew gives us one of the birth narratives. And then all of a sudden, Matthew jumps straight to Jesus' baptism by John the baptizer. Well, the next scene is Jesus in the wilderness facing the devil in the temptation that he brings to him. And so we're, all of Jesus' life revolves around Israel. And this is a map of, you see this, this is Israel and you can see some of the different areas. And Jesus spent all of his life there except for his time down in Egypt. But at the very northern part, we find Jesus and he begins his public ministry. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4 verse 18, he goes to the shore of Galilee and he calls the very first disciples. You see him sitting with Peter and Andrew and James and John at a place called Topka. And it's in this area of Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. If I looked at the previous chapter, look back at Matthew chapter 4 verses beginning at 23. It says he's going all throughout Galilee. So he's going, and I tell you, Marla and I have had the, the blessing of being able to go to Israel. And this was absolutely my favorite part when we were in the area of Galilee. So this is where Jesus is, and notice what he's doing. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He is healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So you can imagine, man, word begins spreading quickly about this obscure man that is up in Galilee and he's doing all of these miracles. Because look at what happens in 24. His fame is spread all throughout Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And that's where we see Jesus. People are coming from all over to this little area of Galilee. And here's the sea. 
is not very big and people are coming from all different directions. But what are they looking for? They're looking for relief. They're looking for freedom from demons. They're looking for relief from their disease and sickness and pains. And you find Jesus at Tabga. It's this area on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, just south of Capernaum. And that's where you find Matthew chapter 5. So imagine this area, and this is a picture of the, the Tabga looking out at the Sea of Galilee. And here's Jesus with all of these people coming from all over. And they're sick, and they're diseased, and they're afflicted. And Jesus is standing on this shore with him. So now look at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And he sat down and his disciples came to him. And we don't know exactly where this happened. It's really one of two places. One of the, the ideas of thought is Mount Arbel. The problem is it's about 14 miles away. It'd be almost a day's journey. But between the two, there sits this small mountain, this hill. And sitting on this hill, you today you can sit there and you can look out and you can see the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus sits down and he begins to speak. And he opened his mouth in verse 2. And he taught them saying. And this is where we begin. This is the place. If you have headings. It most likely says the Beatitudes. And this is what we call. In fact there are, there are eight of them. We're going to look at the first four today. But this idea. This word Beatitude means blessing. Or blessed. But what does it mean to be blessed by God? Hey, it's something we've all said. It's something we have all heard. We've even created the hashtag blessed. But what do we often mean? I think oftentimes we think of the things that happen to us. Man, we get that job we wanted and I'm blessed. Our children, maybe they make the National Honor Society and we would say, man, I am so blessed. We get a great deal on something, a car or a house and we're blessed. We Think of our family, maybe most of us, and we would say, I'm blessed. Thinking about my mother, I would say, yes, I was blessed with a great mother. Or things just really go well one day, and you go, man, I'm just blessed. Well, that's not what Matthew is describing. That's not the hashtag he's going to use, because blessed doesn't mean happy. It isn't this state of feeling. So what does he mean? This idea of blessed means that God is making a positive judgment of approval upon someone. That for God to find approval in us, it's a word that means supreme blessings. So it's not how we feel, it's how we are viewed by God. But I know myself and I know most of you and we should be in this state where we do not feel any entitlement that God would ever find any approval of us. But I've often wondered how important really is God's approval to me. I think about wanting the approval of other people, of the church, of my friends and 
family and coworker, I think about their approval a lot. In fact, that's one of the demons I seem to fight every week is to stand up to open God's word. There's this thing in me that wants to be approved by you even in this. But that's not what Matthew is talking about. And that is why this section of scripture is so convicting. And it should be so painful because this passage is going to call us to take an open and honest look at ourselves and answer what is most important to me. And so he's going to give us eight Beatitudes, and we're going to look at the first four this morning. So Matthew's remembering these teachings of Jesus, and he records this force. And this is how I would look at the Beatitudes. At first, he's going to see in verse 3 today, he's going to talk about our attitude toward ourselves. Then we will see today our attitude or how it should be towards sin. The next week, we will see our attitude towards the Lord. And then finally, our attitude toward the world. And so our first one is our attitude toward ourselves. And you'll notice at the end of every beatitude, we're going to see a promise. So let's see the first one, our attitude toward ourselves. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. So what is this idea? What does he mean when he says poor in spirit? Well, let's first of all talk about what he is not saying. He, he's not trying to say that we have no value whatsoever. He is not talking about the absence of self-worth. He's not talking that we're just thinking that we are just nothing. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, do you remember what it tells us? It tells us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we, above all of God's creation, are created in his image. Therefore, we have this built-in worth. So he's not talking about a shyness. He's not talking about just being introverted. So let's break it down. This word poor, patohos, it means to cower. It means to cringe like a beggar. So poor is the state of poverty that is so deep that a person must obtain a living by looking to other people. It's a person that has no available resources in himself to provide for his basic needs. It's someone that cannot survive without the help of someone outside of himself. With that in mind, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. At the end of this massive teaching of Jesus on this hill, look at ver or chapter 8 of Matthew. Look at the very first scene after this. This is amazing to me. The very first group of people that Jesus encounters do you see who it is? It's a group of lepers. They would be the picture of poor. And it's the first people that he sees coming down off the mountain of people that are absolutely at the mercy of someone else. There is no way they can provide for their basic needs. They are the picture of poor. Of someone that has no ability to help themselves. 
They're absolutely at the mercy of others. But Jesus isn't talking about a material poor. Because notice what he says, those who are poor in spirit. He's describing those who are so desperately poor in their spiritual resources that they realize that they must have help from outside themselves. It's coming to this awareness that I am utterly sinful without the morality or goodness that God would ever approve of me. It's knowing that I am spiritually bankrupt. And here's how this is so powerful. For one, it's the absolute opposite of the message that the world wants us to believe. The world's going to tell you, you know what? Just believe in yourself. If you just put all that you have into your dreams, you can achieve it. If you work hard enough, you can build the life that you want. If you envision it, it can be yours. And that might be true. But if we are only living for this day and this time and this world, then we have missed God. But second, the reason this is so powerful is this idea of spiritual poverty, of being poor in spirit, it is essential for anyone's salvation. Because no one comes to Christ without poverty of the spirit. No one will experience salvation until they realize who they truly are. Because notice the promise, the poor in spirit, those depending on God, recognizing their spiritual bankruptcy for theirs. You know what that word, it means only theirs, is the kingdom of God. That you will never experience salvation. You'll never experience this problem in any other spirit. It's not the spirit that I can do better or I'll just try harder. It's not in the spirit that I can do this. So it's not until we are totally dependent on him and recognize our spiritual bankruptcy that the promise of the kingdom of God becomes ours. And our problem, my problem, is because I know the pull and the attraction of this world is so strong. But it's only a facade. The truth is, those who are not poor in spirit will never ever have membership into the kingdom of God. No one will ever be an eternity with him unless they acknowledge them. Does not happen in any other way. Because you know, it doesn't matter how many times you've walked an aisle. It doesn't matter how many times you've raised a hand or filled out a decision card or even walked an aisle or prayed a sinner's prayer. There is no salvation, no access to his kingdom other than being poor in spirit. So this idea of poor in spirit is recognizing and acknowledging our spiritual poverty and bankruptcy. That's the only way we find being blessed or finding God's approval. Because look at the second attitude toward sin, the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. So first of all, we're to see ourselves as being poor in spirit of spiritual bankruptcy. And then blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So this idea of mourning, it's not this 
cheerless. It's not being grim. It's not mourning even over something sad that happens. He's not talking about mourning even over the death of someone. He's talking about a spiritual mourning. He's trying to describe people that are broken over their sin and the sins of the world. It's grieving over what is wrong with me and seeing that effects around me in the world. So let me ask you, when was the last time you found yourself truly broken over your own sin? So he wants us to see sin in the way God sees it. And I've wondered, do I ever stop and think about what my sin does to God, the one that created me, that gives me purpose, that, that sent his son, that sin is the deepest stab into the heart of God. So notice now how these beatitudes begin to lead into each other. So where do you start? It starts with this acknowledgement of my spiritual bankruptcy and, and poverty, this having this poor in spirit. And then naturally when that happens, I should be grieved over my condition and the sins of the world. And the same thing is true for this beatitude is the first one. No one is truly a Christian who is not first mourned over their sin. In fact, you cannot be forgiven. I can't be forgiven if I'm not aware and grieved over what I have done. In fact, I would go as far to say that mourning over your sin is actually a sign that you do belong to him. And then notice the promise. Those who mourn will be comforted. But when you look in the tense of these words, this is an immediate promise. When I mourn over my sins and the sins of the world, there is immediate comfort. Because it comes in the way of forgiveness. But there's a second attitude of sin. Look at verse 5. It says, blessed, and this is the one that got me this week. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So meekness, first of all, it's not a weakness. It's, it's not cowardly. It's not spineless. It's not a shyness. It's not being kind of withdrawn. But to see this, you have to look at where Jesus is drawing from. If you've got cross-references you're going to notice it's going to take you to a place in the Psalms. It's going to take you to Psalm 37. So let's turn there this morning. We've got time. In Psalm 37, look at verse 11 first. He's going to draw upon it's almost word for word. Because in Psalm 37, verse 11, notice he says, But the meek, they shall inherit the land. And delight themselves in abundant peace. And so this psalm shows us what meekness actually is. Because look back at verse 5 of Psalm 37. He's going to lay out these conditions for a person that is meek. He begins by saying, commit your way to the Lord. And here's the first one. Trust in him. 
So the first mark of someone that's meek is that they trust God. It's someone that doesn't always have to be in control. And I thought, oh, no. It's not always having to take everything into their own hands. It's trusting that God to do the work in and for us. Meek is not always having to even get even or to take revenge. It's trusting God to deal with people. Look at verse 7. It gets worse. Be still before the Lord. I can almost do that. And wait patiently for him. Meek can be quiet before the Lord and wait for him. So being meek is being able to be patient. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Over the man who carries out evil desires. So meek is this idea of not being, getting consumed by the wickedness that we see in the world. Concerned, yes. Mourn, yes. But it's not getting consumed with it and trusting that God knows what he's doing and he has a plan. Being meek is watching people prosper and not being able or being able to not be jealous about it. And look at verse 8. It says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. The meek is this idea of strength under control. It's not allowing our anger to consume and to control us. But you know another key to meekness? It's being able to admit that I'm a sinner. And I think the problem with that is we'll easily say that. You know, I can say, yes, I'm a sinner. And you would believe that because you know you are. And we would say that, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But another mark of meekness is what would happen if someone noticed it and lovingly came up to you and tried to talk about it. How easily do we take offense? Do we start making excuses? Or do we try to turn the spotlight back on them? Being meek is being, being able to take that. So notice again how these beatitudes build on one another. The first beatitude asks you, it asks me to realize and acknowledge our weakness and our spiritual poverty. It confronts us with the fact that we will one day face a holy and righteous God. And if we feel we can do this on our own, that we have missed Christ and missed the Messiah. But when this happens, we are being poor in spirit. And when we're poor in spirit, it tells us that we will then mourn over our sins and our condition and the sins of the world. And when you put those two attitudes together, guess what it creates? It creates a meek spirit. That meekness says, I, who am I to demand anything of God? Meekness says, who am I to be entitled to anything. He shows us our attitude toward ourselves and sin. 
Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those that thirst and hunger. Now I know two basic things about nutrition. The first one is this. We are what we eat. It's just true. We are what we eat. Whatever we're feeding on, it eventually will personify us. And you know this about me. There's two things I love. Salt and vinegar chips and buttermilk pie. We are what we eat. But whatever we're feeding on, whether that's physically or emotionally or spiritually, eventually that will personify us. But there's another thing. I've realized you can't outwork your diet. You just can't do it. You can't outwork your diet. Meaning we can do a lot of Christian activities. Man, and they can seem right, and they can seem good, and they can even seem honoring. But if we are not feeding on the right things, those Christian activities that we're doing eventually will not be enough. They just won't. They will not be able to sustain us and they will easily fade away. So he tells us to hunger and thirst. This is this intense longing for something. But I know we hunger. We thirst for all kinds of things. I know I do. But notice what we are to hunger and thirst for. Righteousness. Righteousness is this idea of, of pursuing passionately what, and being concerned with what is right and pure. It's righteous living. So he says hunger and thirst, meaning that all of the things in our lives, everything, there is not an area that we do not want to line up with God's will. There isn't anything we are not willing to put on the table to follow his plan. But you know what's hard? Is that will be costly. And it will not be very popular. So I ask us again, how much do we actually hunger and thirst for righteousness? You know when we will? It's when we finally come grips with who we really are in our spiritual depravity, and we actually mourn over our sins. And so I think Jesus wants us to take a careful look at our souls, that this is a painful test, because you know and I know in our hearts of heart what we are actually longing for. And notice the promise of this one. They will, meaning only they, will be satisfied that this is the only way to truly be satisfied so take your favorite snack take your favorite drink or your favorite cheat and you don't have it for quite a while i can remember one time this happened to me i used to drink so much sweet tea and i thought okay i gotta get off the sugar gave it up for a while finally came my cheat day man i took a drink of that sweet tea and I thought the back of my head was going to explode it was like oh, I mean I just couldn't believe it I think I probably audibly moaned 
Because I hadn't had this for so long. And you know there's this instant awe. There's this instant relief and this excitement. There's this immediate gratification that I have been missing out on. But a half an hour goes by and all of a sudden it's gone. You know what happens when you do that enough times? All of a sudden, you go through that cycle enough. And nowadays, I, I couldn't, I will not touch sweet tea. And I can tell if there's just a grain of it. I, I can't stand it anymore. Because there's absolutely no satisfaction in it. So what he's talking about is pursuing righteous living. The more we can form to his will, the more we experience how, how spiritually bankrupt we are, the more we find ourselves mourning over our sin and the sins of the world, the more meek we become, we will be more fulfilled and more content. But unlike that favorite drink or snack or cheat, the more we hunger and thirst for righteousness, you know what happens? In us grows this greater discontentment that we will want more and more of it, not less and less. That we have a greater desire for what is right and pure. That our hunger, unlike the sweet tea, it actually begins to increase and intensify greater and greater. So I want to make sure we see and fill this today. Jesus is beginning the Sermon on the Mount, and he is not here to give a pet talk. He is not here to just rally the crowd. He is not here to be popular and to get more YouTube clicks. That is not what Jesus is wanting to do. That Jesus wants all of those that are following him from all over the area to follow him up on this mountain. But he wants them to come down completely undone. He wants to pull the curtain back on all the things they are searching after and living for. Jesus is wanting to bring them to an end of themselves. Because Jesus actually wants to give them a new way to see themselves. He wants them to have a new attitude toward themselves and sin and ultimately God. But Jesus knows that he can't build anything that will truly last until he tears everything down. That he knows that there has to be an emptying before there can be a filling. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you can't put new wine in a vessel that is already full of old wine. So let me ask you, is your Christianity, is your faith, is your walk with Christ, is your involvement in the church mainly superficial? Well, the good news is if you want more, if you want something more meaningful, if you want something more satisfying, if you want something stronger and deeper and more Christ-exalting, then he has just given you the first four ingredients and next week lord willing he'll give us the next four thanks again for listening to the podcast today we hope that you were blessed and encouraged and if you have any questions or comments we want you to let us know 
Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.